regular listeners will know that I'm approaching the deadline for my book, uh, so podcasting is a bit thin on the ground at the moment. But instead of leaving you with no weekly Atomic Hobo, what I'm going to do is read you a short extract from my book. Today, I'm taking you to my chapter on the Royal Observer Corps. So I'll read you a short extract from that chapter, and then I'll get back to work. In the hills above Largs, the air is warm and drowsy, and the cows don't even bother to lift their heads when we stop the car. Far below is the sparkling Firth of Clyde, offering the type of splendid view which makes you want to spread a blanket and rest on the grass. But we're not here to sunbathe. We leave the road and step into a field. Frank jingles a bunch of keys. We approach a gate wrapped tight with chain, There's a struggle with the heavy padlock. It snaps open and Frank ushers me through. Here we are now on the other side of that fence, still in the same green field, still with the same cows tearing at the grass and still with the same warm, sunny air. The only difference is that this section of field contains a nuclear bunker. Yet there's no monstrous installation here. There's no hideous apocalyptic blight. All that can be spotted is a green concrete block, as though someone has left a large Lego brick on the grass. We trudge towards it, and other little signs appear which show this is no ordinary field. Sturdy pipes and boxy things protrude from the grass. We arrive at the Lego brick, painted a glossy green, and its surrounding grass all neatly trimmed. Frank certainly looks after this bunker. I expect to see a shed nearby, the sound of Radio 2 floating out as Frank tends his bunker in his retirement weekends. He served here during the Cold War, and now rents this tiny scrap of field from the landowner so that he might lovingly restore his old nuclear hangout. The sun warms the glossy green paint and the view down to Largs is spectacular. There are surely worse ways to spend your retirement. But despite the neat grass, the fresh paint and the pretty meadow, there is still a nuclear bunker under our feet. And so the warm, jovial feeling ebbs away. Such a dreadful thing has no business here. It's almost obscene. In the seaside town below, 
There is candy floss, ten-pin bowling and strawberry fudge and crinkly cellophane bags. And up here, hiding beneath the hills, a nuclear bunker. This is the Royal Observer Corps 23 Post Skilmerly, to give the thing its proper title. And it's a tiny bunker made for three. There were hundreds of them across Britain, built to shelter the volunteer men and women of the Royal Observer Corps, ROC, in the event of nuclear war, from where they deliver attack warnings and monitor the subsequent bombs and fallout. There was a network of these tiny monitoring posts across the country, with one situated every eight miles or so, giving most of Britain a little ROC bunker of its own, so that damage in all areas could be monitored. Each post would feed local conditions to its group HQ, who'd analyse the data, assess the damage and the likely path of fallout, and send a report higher up the chain to Sector HQ, who would amass a picture of ruined Britain. Which cities were hit, which airfields gone, which roads and bridges impassable, and they'd work out where fallout was likely to descend. Each group drew up their piece of the map, and then Sector HQ pieced it together to form a ghastly jigsaw of post-nuclear Britain. At their peak, there were 1,563 monitoring posts, with the number reduced to 869 after government cutbacks of 1968. They were usually sited on high, empty land, but could also be found in parks and housing estates. And although the ROC was disbanded in 1991, their tiny bunkers are still here, though most are now abandoned, rusted shut, vandalised, some filled in with concrete, others flooded to the brim with rainwater. But some have found a second life as wine cellars, storage space, or as secure locations for the stockpiling of veterinary drugs. You might pass one each day on your way to work, but dismiss it as something to do with the council, something to do with the electricity board maybe. Certainly nothing to do with the end of the world. When people think of the Royal Observer Corps, most will imagine the Blitz, picturing a man in a tin hat scanning the sky with binoculars, watching for German bombers. Maybe he's on the roof of St Paul's. Maybe he's on a hillside in Kent with white contrails printed fresh on the blue sky. We know him from wartime films and flickering newsreels. It's his finest hour. He watches the sky, clocks the planes, lifts a heavy black phone and calls in his report. His chums in HQ plot the raider's likely course, the RAF scramble, the siren sounds, and he can climb down from his perch, take off his hat and have a cuppa. This is the nostalgic image of the ROC. Selfless guardians who watch the skies to keep us safe. Forewarned is forearmed was the Corps' motto. Their logo, a figure from the Elizabethan era, holding aloft a burning beacon, referencing the time when this method was used to give warning of approaching invaders. The Corps saw themselves as the modern equivalent of these men from history who watched the city walls by firelight to keep the citizenry safe. They were rightly proud of this role, 
having played a vital part in Britain's air defence during the Second World War, where they were known as the eyes and ears of the RAF. But they weren't airmen or soldiers, they were volunteers. Some might have been retired from the RAF, or been aviation buffs, but most were just ordinary blokes. And in 1941, women were allowed to join. Even the Queen got involved. In 1944, as young Princess Elizabeth, she joined the observers at Windsor Castle's Brunswick Tower, the country's highest ROC post, to watch the V-bombers attack London. Whilst conditions were primitive in other observer posts, those stationed at Brunswick Tower could enjoy meals brought to them on trays by the Windsor Castle footmen. This royal connection continued when the Observer Corps were granted the title Royal by the King in 1941, in recognition of their work during the Battle of Britain. And yet, despite being lauded by the King, celebrated and recognised, they were soon redundant. The Corps were stood down in May 1945. Not only was the war ending, but the jet age had come roaring in, and a chat with binoculars was no match for these new planes. Had an observer glimpse an oncoming jet, it had vanished over his head before he'd been able to reach for the phone. Their adventure had come to an end. But by 1947, they were back. The ROC was quickly resurrected as the chill of the Cold War came creeping in. This time they had a new role and a new enemy, as Britain faced an emerging threat from the Soviet Union. And when the Soviets acquired a nuclear bomb in August 1949, that threat only increased. In 1955, the ROC were given this new nuclear monitoring role and asked to swap the hills and the rooftops for those tiny little bunkers underground where they'd no longer be watching for planes but for nuclear bursts and the deadly drift of fallout. Frank twists a key in the metal hatch and lifts it open. I place my hands on the edge and peer down into a whitewashed shaft with a steel ladder pinned to the wall. Cold air drifts up out of the depths. A thick rope dangles on the wall like a noose. Frank goes first, an expert showing me the knack for swinging your legs over the edge and zipping in and out of the bunker. He scampers down the ladder, and I descend, rung by rung, hand over hand, like a frightened old lady. Although I soon realise I needn't fear falling from the ladder because the shaft is so snug that even if I did lose my grip and fall backwards, the grubby sides of the wall would immediately catch me. Nonetheless, I'm glad to hear Frank's voice drift up through the gloom and say, You're nearly there! I step off the ladder and stamp my feet gratefully on firm ground. Frank has flicked on the lights down in the bunker and its tiny space is filled with a weak aquarium light. I look back up the shaft to the distant square of perfect blue sky. At least I can scoop back up the ladder at any point. Had the observers been sent down here for real, the hatch would have been clanged shut, sealing them in here for nuclear war. 
These little bunkers are horribly unwelcoming for claustrophobes, containing only a cupboard and a larger room. And if you dwell too much on the grubby white walls around you, it might cause you to become horribly aware of all the damp earth piled up and over your head. Frank gives me the tour. The little cupboard is actually a toilet with a large plastic bin, the Elson chemical toilet, taking up much of the space. Next to the toilet cupboard is the workspace, a dinky little office for measuring the end of the world. The room holds a set of steel bunk beds and a desk with various instruments, ring binders and communications equipment. Maps and charts cover the walls and various shelves hold ration tins, instruction manuals and some tiny pots for cooking. There are some candles, a Victorian-looking candlestick holder and a green plastic first aid kit. There's also a locked red box labelled Transition to War Instructions. With the weak light... Low ceiling, grubby walls and stacks of clutter. The thought of being confined here while nuclear war roared above is almost unbearable. So that was it. The toilet, the workspace and that metal lid clanging shut above you blocking out the world. Despite being summer, the air in the bunker was chilly. In winter it must be dreadfully cold. So there'd be no point then in the calendar where observers would have been cosy and comfortable down here. Of course, the posts were never used for real, but lengthy training exercises were regularly held and there were weekly meetings and maintenance to be done. Naturally, some observers thought they would spruce up the posts, bathing their bunker discomforts with boisterous pride and developing ingenious ways to make them just a little bit more homely and comfortable by introducing dartboards, scraps of carpet, some curtains to screen off the beds, and even, in one case, a portable TV hooked up to a battery. Dreary 48-hour training exercises practising for nuclear war had to be perked up somehow. Remembering his time in the ROC, Frank agreed with these little flashes of decoration and comfort. He said... There was a certain degree of autonomy with what you could do, as long as you didn't turn it into a boudoir. One observer, not content with the official nuclear seating arrangements, even managed to manoeuvre an armchair down the shaft. Others sought clever ways to combat the chilly air. Oh, the main problem was cold and damp, says Mark Rogers, who served in Horsham. We had sacks of polystyrene beads to put our feet into to try and insulate them. We were one of the few posts with an NBC air filter, which we had to hand crank for 10 minutes every hour. Inevitably, it pumped freezing air around the post. It was a great place to retreat if you had a migraine, though. One thing which is obvious when speaking to former observers is the great camaraderie between them. And when you consider how they were thrown together in such close quarters in these odd circumstances... It's easy to see why humour and strong friendships were forged. The long stint when I did the whole 48 hours flew by. 
It's not like office work, it was fun, said Bernie Mail, who served in Worcestershire. We had a radio that worked down there. Books, magazines, card games. And I remember an epic Monopoly game that seemed to go on for a very long time. Lighting was always a problem. We had a battery that we charged, but this failed regularly. And I remember when the lights went out on one exercise, scrabbling about for matches, and the rest of the exercise was done by candlelight. And I'll give you a, another extract from further along in the chapter, which explains what all those measuring instruments were on the desk down in the ROC post. Arranged on the desk are three instruments for measuring and monitoring nuclear attack. And the first indication that war has begun will come from the Bomb Power Indicator, BPI. This is a kind of nuclear barometer, and it's connected to the surface by a long pipe which can detect changes in air pressure. When a nuclear bomb explodes, the pipe feeds the change in air pressure down to the indicator, which sits by the desk. The silent swing of the needle is the first indication that nuclear war has started. When the BPI jerks into life, the observers get to work. They note the time and take a reading from the dial, which indicates the strength of the detonation. They contact HQ to confirm the blast using the code word Toxin Bang and they give the location, time of explosion and its indicated strength. The HQ will be receiving similar reports from across the region and by using triangulation they can get a pretty accurate picture of the bomb's location and power. Observers in the HQs will be plotting the location of the bombs on a huge Perspex map gradually assembling a picture of their region. Once locations are known, the meteorologists can start working out where the subsequent fallout is likely to go, and fallout warnings can be issued. But the HQs need more precise information. Crucially, they need to know if the bomb exploded in the air or on the ground, because both types of detonation produce hugely different effects. An air burst creates more physical damage as there's nothing in the air to impede the blast. Whereas a ground burst will create less damage, as much of its power has gone into gouging a crater in the earth, but the resulting debris will be sucked up into the mushroom cloud, later to descend as deadly fallout. Again, we look to the observers in the monitoring posts to confirm this for us. They can tell whether the bomb has exploded in the air or the ground, thanks to a very basic pinhole camera known as the Ground Zero Indicator. It's stunningly simple in its design. It's merely a cylindrical drum with a tiny hole through which pours the awful light of the bomb, burning a scorch mark onto the photographic paper within. The only problem, and it is quite a whopper, is that the camera is of course outside, and someone has to go up there and collect the paper. Fallout doesn't descend immediately, so there'd be no risk of contamination to the unlucky chap who was chosen to go outside. But the thought of climbing that steel ladder and going into the post-nuclear world alone is dreadful. He'd don some protective layers of clothing and put a satchel across his shoulder which contained fresh photographic paper 
so he could restock the camera after removing the scorched contents. While he was up there, working quickly on the camera, he'd be asked to make a quick visual assessment of the mushroom clouds, noting their size, their elevation and location. Bear in mind that while he was working above ground, he'd be obliged to close the hatch. Should another bomb drop, his other two colleagues would be protected. Closing that lid and being alone up there would be a test for anyone's nerves. Having changed the papers, he'd dive quickly back down the hatch to hand over the scorched paper to his colleagues, who'd interpret it and make another report to HQ, who'd now be sketching out mushroom clouds and weather patterns and fallout plumes on that huge perspex map of the region. The reassuringly familiar details of the British map gradually becoming obscured beneath alien patterns, lines and symbols. If a fallout plume was sketched on the map, all the settlements in its ghostly path would have to be evacuated. If they were still standing, if conditions allowed, and if the resources, manpower and will to conduct such an operation still existed. If. I hope you all enjoyed that short extract from my chapter on the Royal Observer Corps. And before I get back to work finishing the book, uh, let me thank my latest patron, Peter Ladner. Thank you, Peter, for joining my Patreon. Peter also sent me an email with some recommendations for nuclear war films that we might look at at a later date. So I'm sure once I've got the book finished and I can breathe properly again, we will scrutinise those films at a later date. Peter has suggested a Countdown to Looking Glass, Special Bulletin and Panic in Year Zero. So yes, Peter, thank you for that suggestion. We will look at them once the book is done. Let me also give a shout out to the following patrons. Liz Murdoch, Mark Willis, Neil Collinson, John Cinnamond, Heather Parker and Linda Woolnuff. Thank you everyone who supports me through Patreon. If you want to join my Patreon, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you can donate uh, as much or as little as you like. Every single penny, of course, helps with my cost of running the podcast and with uh, my research also. It's not just the podcast running costs, it's buying the books, buying access to archives. And of course, um, as you heard in that uh, podcast extract, or the book extract, occasional travel costs to go and visit nuclear bunkers. So please do consider supporting me on Patreon. And thank you to everyone who does so. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, remember, at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. Hope you enjoyed the small extract from the book, and now I will go and get back to finishing the rest of it. Bye for now. <laughs>